I thought I came in with the Bible, but maybe I didn't. It's still in my office. The good news is you have lots of them in front of you if you want a handheld Bible. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen, and I'll be able to read them off the other screen. We'll be reading 1 Thessalonians 4 today, uh, verses 13 through 18. And um, yeah, this is God's word for us to hear and reflect on and to shape our lives. So hear God's word. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. So that's the map. You probably can't see that one especially, but you can see that in the box at the top here is Thessalonica. That's the Aegean Sea. This is really the Mediterranean Sea. Um, just off of this side of the map would be the Adriatic Sea, and then Italy comes next, just to give you a bit of a um, orientation. And that's basically a map of a Greek city. It's no specific city, or maybe a specific city. I didn't put it up there, but whatever city it is, I'm going to explain in words what you need to know from that, so don't worry about the fact that there's no way you can see the detail on there. So we're going to be talking about the return of the king. And if you're a J.R. Tolkien fan, or maybe a movie fan, you know that the return of the king is the last of the trilogy. And, and J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien uh, wrote his stuff based on um, biblical ideas and concepts and stories and so on himself and C.S. Lewis loved to take the idea of myth, of story, and use it to um, get across the powerful images of the scripture. In my humble opinion, that's also what the Bible does. The Bible is full of story because those stories are what bring across the kind of truths that stay home with us. So the idea of the return of the king to people who would live on a map like this was that in Greece, um, at the time that Paul met the Thessalonians and wrote this letter to them, they would sometimes have a, a conquering um, king or an emperor come and visit them. And sometimes, like our prime minister or the president of the U.S. would do, if there's, if there's a disaster in the area, that figurehead, that king, that leader would come and visit, and he would assess with his, his people, what are the needs in this area? And so say there had been a disaster in Thessalonica, Seth, uh, I'm not going to say that name very often, Thessalonica, I can't say it, Thess, that's what we're going with today. So say there's a disaster in Thess, and the king comes, and he assesses, I think if I give you $4 million, let's do today's numbers, I think that you can fix some of these things and produce those kinds of things that will help you thrive again. And then the king would leave that money, 
He would appoint a few officials. He would take off again. But the assumption was there would be a return of the king, and he'd want to see, well, what did you do with the money, right? He would hold them accountable. Jesus tells some parables along this line as well, as a matter of fact. And when he comes, probably what he would see is they realize, wait, we need, we need a town square, we need a, a central office, we need some system stuff in place, we need to dig some wells perhaps. But they would also make sure that, say, the emperor's name was Nero, because that was an emperor, that they would have some stadium or monument that had Nero's name on it so that, they, so that he knew that they recognized and celebrated who he was. And in anticipation of the return of this king, they'd be ready because they'd be expecting that someday he's going to come and every city had people on the, on the walls watching out, looking into the distance and anticipating when they see what looks like a cloud of smoke coming from a large entourage, it's probably going to be the king and the trumpets would, would sound and people would get ready and they'd throw a great big party. They'd be on call and ready for this. If you've hung around in church for a long time, then does that help you sound, guys, if I actually wear it the right way? If you've been in church a long time, you might be seeing that what we're leading to here is an understanding of what the people in Thess were thinking when Paul was writing them the words that we looked at today. And so we're going to go through that with that image um, in the back of our minds. Sleep and death. So first, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. It's interesting that they use the word sleep. Jesus used that once. He said, this girl's not, not dead. She's asleep. And then he raised her from the dead. We in our world seldom use the word death when we're talking about people. We'll often say they passed away. Um, a lot of that, what we're doing is we're trying to just dull the edge, and that's okay because death is painful, and so we want to be cautious and careful and sensitive. But here, the use of sleep isn't really about dulling the pain. The use of sleep here is Paul's powerful way of saying, if you're in Christ, you don't really fully die. It's like you just went to sleep, and then when the king returns, you'll be waking up. Now, what happened for the people in Thess was that they, they were, it seemed like most early Christians, they were expecting Jesus to come back any day now. They thought that Jesus' return would be like another 40 days after Pentecost. And so when you read through the New Testament, you'll often read about the imminence about how any day now Jesus is going to return. And if you're living right now, you realize, well, it's been at least 2,000 years, so it doesn't seem like it was really quick, right? So they, they thought that, they anticipated that. And so then when the first people who were followers of Jesus started to die, they were wondering, uh-oh, what happened to them? They, they, they missed the return. They don't get to see the return of the king. What do we do with that? All right? Now, we've had a long time to figure this out, so it might not be our question, but that's what they were wondering about. And so Paul wants to inform them about what happens to those who have already died. And he says to them, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Right? So... And this is very helpful, basic instruction for how we deal with loss of all kinds in our lives. Grieve, but not as one without hope. Sometimes it seems that in, in Christian circles, we sort of get the impression that because we believe in the resurrection, that we shouldn't be grieving. And only that, somehow in our culture, we have taught each other that 
somehow grieving, especially in public, crying in public is, is shameful. And so I want to encourage you with Paul, grieve. If you have something to grieve, grieve. Talk about it, share about it, cry about it, right? Feel all the feelings that come with you. Those are just God's way of telling you what's going on in your life. But also hang on to hope. And there's always, in, like so many things in the Bible, there's this balance that we do there, right? We hang on to hope because we, we anticipate, we understand, we, we believe in um, the resurrection, the return of Christ, and, and all things being made new. But in the moment, if you're feeling pain, do not let anyone tell you that, no, no, you don't have to worry about that because this person is with Jesus or he's coming back and, and all those things. You're feeling pain because you're human and someone has been taken away from you. Grieve, but not as those without hope. We put those two things together. And then this core teaching in the middle of this. Resurrection, past, present, and future, I call this. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, one little teaching I want to first put out of this. It says fallen asleep in Jesus, right? That little line in Jesus, and I think I've taught you this before, but I'll remind you. That little line in Jesus is sort of the, the, the capturing point of what it means to be a Christian, to churchgoer, a follower of Christ in this world. It means that what happens in baptism is that today, little baby Benjamin was symbolically anyways, immersed in this water, immersed in this water of Christ, if you will, so that he is so surrounded and encompassed by Christ that he is called in Christ, right? We're incorporated into the body of Christ. We're in Christ. We're so totally tied with him that you can't separate us anymore. The two have become one, if you will. So... One little challenge to some common language we use around people passing away or dying is we now say, well, now he's with Jesus or now she's with Jesus. No, now you are with Jesus. Now, not later, right? And it might just be a little language thing and you might totally understand this, but I want to encourage you to adjust that language to focus on the fact that every single day of your life that you know who Jesus is and that you follow him and you're loving your neighbor and you're loving God, you are in Jesus, that's not a later thing, right? And as you see, the teaching of this passage is going to lead us to a point where we understand that we're not waiting to get out of here and go somewhere else to be with Jesus. We're meant to be recognizing we're with Jesus now in spirit, and we will be with him fully and in person when he returns at the end. That's the teaching of Scripture. Wait, there's more in here. And then there's the pattern. We believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. And so we also believe that if we die in Christ, we're also going to rise again because we're in Christ. If Christ rose again, we rose again. Simple enough. Now, between Jesus dying and rising again and the final death and resurrection experience of, of all creation, we go through this pattern over and over again. So baptism again is a little death. Baptism is dying to Christ, going under with Christ, and being raised again. That's the first one. That's the initial one. When you confess your sins to another person, and I highly recommend that when you confess your sins, you do it to another person, you will feel and experience, actually, a little death where you are giving something of yourself over to somebody else. You're giving your vulnerability and your pride over to that person, and when they say, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven, you're receiving life again. 
right? That one you can feel. And every time you give your time and your life and your money in service, every time you put to death something that you want to hang on to for yourself and let somebody else gain life from it, you are dying and rising again, all right? So this isn't just a um, broad theological idea. It's not just something from the past when Jesus died and from the future when we all rise again at the end. This is the pattern. This is what Christianity is all about, little deaths and little resurrections along the way as we follow Christ. We believe that God will do this and continue to do this with us. So is this a concern for you? Because what I want to do with the Bible is I want to ask the questions that the Bible's actually asking. And sometimes it asks questions that we're not asking. So maybe this is an answer to a question you have never asked. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the question is, have you ever wondered, do I get to see Jesus first or do the people who've died before me get to see him first? And I'm guessing not a lot of you have that as your number one theological question in life. All right? So we recognize they were, the Thess people were in a different world and context and experience than us. But as they're thinking this, Paul's answer comes from that story I told at the beginning. Because when the king returned to the town where he left the millions of dollars for them to do renovations and build up new things and apply it to culture and so on, when he came back, of course, he would come in through the city gate. And just outside that city gate, which you can't see on my map, I'm not even sure it's there, it's so small, was the cemetery. And so the returning king would come through the cemetery. And so when Paul says, um, nah, that's the next line, so let me actually give you the right line to look at. There you go. So when the king is coming, it's like the Lord coming down from heaven. There's going to be a loud command. There's the voice of the archangel. There's the trumpet, the call of God. So when the emperor was coming, they would see him in the distance, as I said earlier. They would play the trumpets. Everyone would gather, and they'd want to go out to meet him, right? So the king would be coming through the cemetery, and so Paul's assumption is, well, the dead are going to rise first because he's going to be coming through. And as he comes toward that cemetery, Christ, anyways, is going to have everybody rise from the dead and begin to meet him. That's the process. As he sees it, it'll be just like this image. And so the dead in Christ will rise first is the image that, a question that they are asking, and probably that's not as um, driven for us. But this part, go to meet the coming king. After that, we who are still alive, our left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So again, the emperor is coming on horseback and with chariots and so on, and he's coming by land. Jesus said, I'll return in the very way that I left you, so he will be coming down from the sky, right? From heaven. But notice which way Jesus is going in this story, right? This is very important. Jesus is coming down this way. Now, we're going to go up to meet him in the air in the same way that when a great important person comes, say, to your house or in the Thess people's um, situation to their city, you run out to meet them because you're excited, right? When grandma and grandpa come over, the little children run out and say, Grandma, Grandpa, and they're all excited because they're coming in, right? They run out to meet them. Now, which way do grandma and grandpa go after they're greeted by the children? Do they go back 
to their car and leave? Well, they are if they're picking them up, I guess. Or do they keep coming into the house for the celebration, celebration planning that you have done? They keep coming in, right? And I say that because maybe not many of you, but there are many folks in this world who think that when Christ comes down and we meet him in the air, he's going to go back up again. And as one person put it, if you keep on going back up, you're going to go right by Christ and he's going to be down here and you're going to be somewhere, somewhere else. Jesus' return is to this world. We meet him in the air to welcome him and greet him because we're so excited to show him what we've been doing. Because what did Jesus do when he left? He said, don't do anything yet until I send you my spirit. And with that spirit came gifts. And with that spirit came fruit and power and the opportunity to do all kinds of mission. And so what really we are doing here is the same thing the people of Fess were doing. We've received this incredible inheritance, this gift of God, the Holy Spirit, and we're working on restoring this city, in our case, Grimsby or Beamsville, Smithville, wherever you live around here, this world. And as we restore it, we're anticipating that someday Jesus is going to come back. Now, as nice as it is that we built a nice building, this is not what Jesus is looking for. You know that, right? He doesn't care how nice our building looks. He wants to know this. Who do you love? Who have you embraced and loved? How have you spread his incredible love into the lives of other people in your family, in your community, in your church, at work? How have you done that? Because when he comes back, hopefully we're going to run to meet him or go up to the clouds to meet him and say, Jesus, look at all the people I've been able to love. Look at all the people that, that I have a relationship with. Look at all the people that... I've been able to share the beauty of what you did as sacrificial lamb. Look at all those connections that have been made. And we'll go up and we'll meet him in the air, and then we'll come down here, and he'll come and look at what does his world look like, the parts that we've had in our hand. And where will we be? So we will be with the Lord forever. Here. Here. Book of Revelation, behold a new heavens and a new earth, because Jesus is coming down um, to this world to finish the restoration, to see the resurrection of the dead, and to take all that we've begun and bless it and multiply it and make all things new so that we can carry on in this world with him. We will be with the Lord forever. And I hope as we head towards this new season of ministry, this new season of work and school, as we head towards September, sorry for breaking it to you that the summer's closing soon, remember that all the stuff that you're doing in this world is preparing for that king to come and say, wow, way to go, that's awesome, that's beautiful, that's powerful, that's truth, that's love, right? The stuff of this world is not the stuff we're waiting to go, well, I'm just going to do this for now so I have enough money to get by, and then later I get to go to heaven, and that's where everything's good. No, you are preparing. You're beginning. You're doing what the returning king is looking for as you work in this world. And therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that encouragement, of course, is as people are facing loss and death and brokenness, but it's also the encouragement I just gave you. I encourage you to own all that you're doing in this world as part of God's good, renewed creation. That's our job, to renew this world, to build up his kingdom, to do all kinds of things so that when the king returns, when Jesus returns, right, we meet him and say, 
look at the work that you've already begun in us through your spirit, and then we get to celebrate the rest of that journey as he finishes it, cleans it up, and makes all things new. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the opportunities that you give us in this world to serve in your name. We thank you for jobs and skills, for schools, for relationships. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that when we engage others in love, that we would recognize that this is your work um, through us. We thank you, Lord, that you've blessed us so abundantly, not necessarily with millions of dollars, but with your spirit and with gifts and with opportunity. And we pray that we may build your kingdom here in this place, that we may build up this city to be a reflection of what you meant it to be. We pray that we may be a community that exemplifies the kind of love that restores life. And we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.